0: Good morning. morning. This is October 22nd, 2023. My name is Kanji Singer, and this is a Coming to the PATH talk. So most of this talk was put together about 13 years ago when I was training with my teacher Amala Roshi in Auckland, New Zealand and I was asked to give a Coming to the PATH talk there. And I guess a Coming to the Path talk is a chance for a person to think back to their early years and kind of look at some of the causes and conditions that came together to make it so that they ended up here at the Rochester Zen Center, which for most of us I think is a pretty unexpected outcome. So that's the material I covered in my um, initial Coming to the Path talk. and I'm gonna stick with that today for the most part but just to say that so much has happened since then Um, I'm 68 years old now when I first came to the center here I was already 45 so I would had a lot of life already before I came to the center and then I've had a lot of life since I came to the center so it's really been hard to know what material to choose here and um, you know, we can say that there's coming to the path, and then there's staying on the path, and I think a lot of us has found that the staying is really a lot more challenging and remarkable in many ways than the coming. So I'm mostly going to look at the coming, but I hope that at the end um, we'll have a little bit of time to to look at the what happened after I got here and the 23 years or whatever it is since then. Okay, but right now I'm going to jump back to the time before my parents gave birth to me and tell one of my favorite, favorite, very favorite stories from the Jewish side of my family. So this story starts in a little shtetl in, in Russia. At least my grandmother always called it Russia, but recently I've become aware that it must have actually been Ukraine. But anyway, <coughs> it was the area that they called the Pale, where the... Russian Empire allowed the Jews to settle. So in this little shtetl there were two little Jewish girls growing up. One was my grandmother, and the other was her sister, my great-aunt. And their names, their names were Fagel and Fenkel Steinberg. So I know that Fagel and Fenkel sound like <laughs> odd names for little girls, but actually in Yiddish, Fagel means little bird, and fenkel means little star, so they were actually beautiful names that they had. The family was very, very poor, and um, so at a certain point, the parents arranged for their daughters to marry men who had managed to immigrate to America. So the the girls didn't know these men, but the idea was that if they could get to America, they would have a better chance at at a future. And I don't know if their marriages were arranged at the same time or if they, were, if they came to this country one after the other. But at any rate, they must have um, been interviewed by different intake officers at Ellis Island or whatever port they came through because when um, my grandmother said that her name was Fagel Steinberg, he said, well, from now on, it's Fanny Steinberg. And when Fankel came through, he said to her, you're now Fanny Steinberg. So. <laughs> we had these two sisters both named Fanny Steinberg (laughs) they both married men named Isaac (laughs) they both named their son Samuel (laughs) so my father was Samuel Waldfogel and his cousin was Samuel Kaplan and I think they were fairly close growing up but um Eventually they went their own ways and um, my father became a professor of psychology Sam Kaplan became a professor of mathematics They both married non-Jewish women and those non-Jewish women did not share a name Uh, My mother was Diana and um, Sam's wife was Marjorie and Marjorie was not only non-Jewish but um, actually had ancestors who came over on the Mayflower so quite a uh, American aristocracy well they weren't in touch when they had their kids but when they did get back in touch you're not going to believe this it's a true story um, <laughs> we had three kids in my family my sister Ann and then me, Kathy and my brother David and uh, the Kaplan's, it turned out had two kids and they were Kathy and David <laughs> and Sam was living in um, West Lafayette, Indiana. He was teaching mathematics at Purdue University. And I don't know how many people have been to West Lafayette, but it's just a classic Midwestern town. And so this would have been in the fifties. Jews were really an anomaly there, you know. And any Jews that there were would have been associated with the university. But um, Kathy and David went to public school there and were usually the only Jewish kids in their class. And Kathy was Sam and Marjorie's birth daughter, but David was actually adopted, and ethnically he was Korean. So here's where you get to the point of the story. <laughs> um, one day in school, in David's class there, studying the, the pilgrims and um, the Mayflower, And the teacher asked, is there anyone in the class who has ancestors that came over on the Mayflower? And the only (laughs) child to raise their hand was David Kaplan, the Korean boy. So anyhow, the reason that I start with that story is because I feel like it, it, it tells us something quintessential, not only about America, but about the religious environment here in America and certainly the religious environment that I was born into. My father was raised as an Orthodox Jew, and my mother was born into a tight-knit Icelandic community in Winnipeg, Manitoba. They were staunch Lutherans. So we could say that both of these communities were maintaining religious traditions that had doubtless been unchanged in Europe for centuries and centuries. But once they came to America, everything was up for grabs and there wasn't a lot of chance that the kids were going to stick with the traditions that they were raised in and i think that's still true in our country i don't think a lot of people <clears throat> tend to follow the same religious path as their parents <clears throat> excuse me am <clears throat> having the same problem we had last week <clears throat> yeah i don't know the statistics of our country compared with others but we're a country of individualists and we have the freedom of religion written into our constitution, and it seems to be almost a demand that everybody find their own way and that it's not gonna necessarily be their parents' way. And I remember in my first years of school, we'd always start the day by saying the Pledge of Allegiance and then the 23rd Psalm and then the Lord's Prayer. And this was public school, but um, I, I grew up in a suburb of Boston and in Massachusetts at that time, prayer in the schools was still legal so we say the lord's prayer every day and if you remember that some of you uh it ends with the lines and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever amen so that was the way the teacher said the prayer and that was the way all the protestant kids said the prayer along with the teacher But the Catholic kids didn't say that last part. They stopped after, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then that was the end for them. And the Jewish kids, of course, didn't say the prayer at all. They'd say the 23rd Psalm, but not the Lord's Prayer. And in the summer where I was growing up, it was really just about one-third Protestant, one-third Catholic, and one-third Jewish. So you knew who you were, you know, from the beginning. and, And there was, it was, again, the religion... There wasn't one way. It was clear that different people had different paths, and that was kind of an open question. Myself, I was being raised in the Unitarian Church, which actually was a really common choice um, for parents of mixed marriages, as they used to be called in those days, between Jews and non-Jews. So since I went to the Unitarian Church, I would say the Lord's Prayer along with the teacher in the Protestant way but always with the awareness that I was Jewish too so it was, there was just a kind of kind of a question there from the beginning as far as the Unitarian Church itself I, I have really fond memories of it they were it was kind ethical people they were very concerned with social justice and I also very much felt that I was part of a church family there I was really bonded with the kids that I sang in choir with, and um, my choir director was a was a musical mentor for me, and many of the adults there were just sort of informal mentors for me as I grew up, just um, seeing their intellectual curiosity and their commitment to advancing what we called then the Brotherhood of Man. Um, it was good, and I think it also offered me a kind of Gentle, free-spirited, free, a kind of gentle, free-spirited introduction to Christianity without all the baggage and hellfire that was going on in so many other sects. But there weren't a whole lot of kids enrolled in the Unitarian School at that time, and um, because of that, there, there weren't enough resources or enough children to have a separate Sunday school class for each grade. So we used to get combined together in different ways. And there was a curriculum that the Unitarians had. I think it was supposed to be for fifth graders, but it was called the Church Across the Street. And what you did uh, when you were taking that class was you would study the other religions that were um, being practiced in the community, and then on a Saturday or Sunday you would go to the services and um, see what was going on there. And because of the way that the classes were combined different years, I actually had that curriculum three years in a row. So I went to a lot of churches and saw a lot of things synagogues um and I found that a really interesting experience uh, my own parents although they chose the unitarian church for us and, and attended as far as their own spiritual life was concerned I think the um best term for it would be they were like post religious They had left orthodox Judaism and um, strict Christianity, and that was liberating for them. They met when my father was teaching psychology at Wayne State University in Detroit, and my mother was one of the students in his class. That was also okay then. Um, (laughs) And their circle of friends was very left-wing, intellectual, Jewish, socialists, communists, Freudians, they were Freudians, or at least they weren't behaviorists. I would say, if anything, their um, religion was psychology, and for them, behaviorists were like the Antichrist. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't have kids after they were married for about eight years, so I think their lifestyle was kind of bohemian. They moved to Boston, where my father uh, was an adjunct professor at Harvard, and my mother worked as a social worker at the Judge Baker Guidance Clinic. But by the time I was born, I was the second child. They had moved to the suburbs and settled down. We lived in a suburb where there were a lot of professors, a lot of academic families. So they settled down there, and I guess they should have lived happily ever after, but that's not what happened. What happened actually was that my father died. And he died when I was five years old. My older sister was nine and my little brother was just two. And he died of colon cancer. So he was quite ill for about a year before he died and was in and out of the hospital, uh, mostly in at the end of that time. So people often ask me if I remember my father and I do remember him. I mean, I suppose at this point they're they're memories of memories, but but no, I I really do remember him. And I, I have very few memories of like anything we did together or anything we talked about, anything like that. But I just remember him. Like I remember what it felt like to sit in his lap, have my cheek against his tweed coat. I remember his scratchy face when he'd come home from work with five o'clock shadow. I remember the way his voice sounded, the way he smelled. So it's like him, I remember. I'm sure if he walked in here and and spoke, I I, I know just what his voice sounded like. But one specific memory that I do have, um, which was just a horrible memory, was, as I said, he was in the hospital that last year, and um, kids weren't allowed to visit people on the hospital wards children weren't allowed on the hospital wards so a nurse had arranged that we could visit my father one day in the hospital lobby so it was supposed to be a special event and we were all dressed up in our party clothes and we were taken to the hospital lobby to see him he was brought down in a wheelchair I seem to remember like there was a plaid blanket over his lap or he was wearing a plaid bathrobe or something there was something about plaid there and um we had a chance to visit with him in this lobby it was a it was a public space people were looking at us i was just totally freaked out we didn't know what to what to do or say and in my mind it didn't make any sense because my father was going to get better and he was going to come home that was the way i looked at it that was what i had been told Um, But, of course, I realize now that he never did come home after that and that uh, this had been arranged because people knew that this was the last time we'd ever see him. And even though I didn't know that, I think, you know, I picked up on it, and that's why I have just this vivid, horrible memory of what, what an awful, awful experience that was. So after my father died, of course, there were many changes... Uh, My mother went back to work. And my grandmother and great-aunt from my mother's side of the family, so that was the Icelandic side, they moved in with us uh, in order to help take care of the kids so that my mother could go back to work. But more important than those sort of external changes was the internal change in me. At at the age of five, I, I had really... Encountered the great matter at close hand seeing death up close and no, I knew that it was a reality and um, I felt like it was a secret that I had that the other children didn't have like the other kids didn't know this they, they seemed sort of simple to me in some way um, it made me feel different and I often felt em- embarrassed if people would find out that I didn't have a father but also just different i knew something that other kids didn't seem to know there was another family in our church who had kids around the same age as us and their father also had died so the mothers got friendly and we used to go on vacations with them sometimes and um it was it was so good to be with those kids it was like they were our compatriots you know you didn't have to explain anything they understood what what was going on and I think it's really interesting that um, many years later, when I got married, uh, my husband also lost his father when he was tiny. And uh, I think that just gave us a baseline of understanding. You know, we, we were coming from the same place. So when I look back at um, those years, it, it always kind of fascinates me how what was going on in the outside world, what was going on in our country, really mirrored what was going on for me personally. Shortly after my father died, President Kennedy was assassinated. That ushered in a decade of assassinations, and for me, each one of those assassinations, it was like somebody's father was getting killed. And especially President Kennedy, the the kids were so close to the age of me and my brother and the little boys saluting at the coffin and all that. It, it, it just... Um, it felt in some ways like like losing my father again. It it affected me a lot. When I was about 10 years old, that was the administration of Lyndon Johnson, so the war in Vietnam was heating up. So my mother gave a talk at at the church and showed a film to encourage people to join the anti-war movement. And my mother had never allowed me to watch anything violent on TV or at the movies. And if anything violent did come up, I was extremely sensitive to that stuff. I have so many memories of being carried out of the movies in tears as a child with my mother saying, how can they call us a children's film? (laughs) (laughs) What is Disney thinking, you know? Show this stuff to children. So, but but she had me come to this talk that she was giving and other kids were there too. And, And to watch this film and it was, just full of graphic images of what was going on in Vietnam at that time and um, what I especially remember was uh, the children scenes of the children who had been napalmed they were in hospital wards like with their skin like coming off of them in in sheets and I was just sitting there thinking how can my mother be letting me see this you know Um, but it was a real turning point for me it was a, a real like loss of innocence and just recognition of of the evil that's in in our world and and also the evil being perpetrated by our own country, which I had always been told was a good country, you know, looking at those kids, it was like we had done that and I, and I, and I couldn't understand that, Of course, I still can't understand it, but as the sixties went on. It was the time when I was a young teenager and all sorts of internal chaos and rebellion that was going on with me seemed to just be mirrored by the external chaos of the war and the chaos that society seemed to be spiraling into with uh, riots in the streets and the anti-war protests. I lived near Harvard Square, and that was where I used to hang out and make pocket money by hawking alternative newspapers, and it was the the era of Timothy Leary. You could always smell the marijuana floating by on the breeze, and uh, there were student riots there at, at Harvard Yard and Harvard Square, and I never was there during a riot, but one of my middle school friends was, and he had his two front teeth knocked out by a brick in the riot, which is kind of a badge of honor for him I guess Um, there were street people mostly runaway teens that fascinated me I used to hang out with them when I could and I would dream about running away from home that was my fondest dream that I'd run away from home (laughs) I never did it but um, you know I couldn't stand the bourgeois values of my family you know (laughs) Which may seem strange since my mother was a social worker, she was an anti-war activist, she was a civil rights activist, she was spearheading drives for fair housing, even working for gay rights in Massachusetts, which wasn't even on most people's radar at that time. But on the personal level, we were just at loggerheads for years and years. Another thing that was happening there in Harvard Square was that there was a real influx of new religions at this point, things we hadn't heard about before. Um, I remember buying a copy of the I Ching at one of the stores that was popping up. Uh, The Hare Krishnas were always there in their orange robes, uh, chanting, uh, giving us magazines that had pictures of beautiful blue gods in them. I loved those. Um, There was the Maharishi, Transcendental Meditation had come in. Uh, Some of my friends took that up And I was interested, but uh, it was very expensive, so it wasn't something that I could afford. So the church across the street with the Unitarians had been one thing, but, you know, it turned out there was so much more. And um, around this time, I became more and more of a religious rebel as well. Though, again, in some ways, it's it's a challenge to rebel against the Unitarians. But... (laughs) (laughs) But when I was 12 years old, I announced to my mother that I was not going to Unitarian Church anymore. I said, it is not even a religion. They don't believe anything, and I'm not going. So um, that was the end of that, at least for then. But I think a more important moment than that that I remember was when I was 14 or 15 and went to the uh, Boston Museum of Fine Arts by myself. So uh, my mother loved the museum, and she had taken us there frequently when we were kids. And so we had always gone and uh, seen our favorite galleries, which were French Impressionists, the early Americans, the Egyptians. But this day I, went, I took the subway there by, and I wandered into a gallery that I had never seen before, and it was the medieval gallery. It was full of crucifixes and angels and madonnas and the paintings of the bright colors and covered in gold leaf. and I was just entranced. you know it was like I had discovered a secret world. It was, they were keeping secret from me, you know? And that began, for me, a, a secret kind of flirtation with Catholicism that went on for many, many years. Maybe it's still going on to some extent, I don't know. But um, it was my secret. My family didn't know about it, and that was one of the ways I found to rebel against the Unitarians. <laughs> So I never did run away, but the closest I came to that was when I graduated from high school. I bought a $99 bus ticket that let you ride the Greyhound bus for three months, go wherever you wanted to go. So for three months I went all around the country, sometimes staying with friends and relatives, uh, sometimes staying in youth hostels, sometimes I'd join up with other people. But mostly I traveled on my own, and... um, as far as religious experiences, did things that, you know, I was lucky to live through, like taking LSD while I was hiking up a mountain in Colorado by myself. <laughs> but since I did live through it, it was a, it was an amazing experience. <laughs> um, but one night I was sitting next to a boy on the bus that um, I had chosen that seat because I thought he looked kind of cute. And... Um, turned out he was a christian and he spent the night trying to convert me to christianity and uh that began a theme in my life that i always seemed to have someone in my life that was trying to convert me to christianity <laughs> one of my good friends in college and the, the best friends that my kids used to play with when they were little you know at every point there was someone who was who was on that uh track with me But, you know, I remember him saying, if you just open your heart and let Jesus in, he'll come. And I knew that was true. But, you know, I couldn't do it. So um, another thing, though, that I did do was, when I visited Santa Fe, I went to the oldest church in the United States, which is there. It was a Spanish mission church course. And um, I bought my first rosary, and a booklet about how to pray the rosary and how to make novenas, and I found out that you know if you pray a certain number of rosaries and make a certain number of novenas, you can make a request of Mary, and it's going to be granted. It never fails. And I started doing that, and it actually it never failed. But I didn't do it for very long because I figured out that we don't know. Even though I had tapped into some power in the universe. I, I realized that I did not have the wisdom to know what to ask for and some of the things that I requested did not turn out well. <laughs> so I just realized that um, that, wasn't, that wasn't the, the way to, to go, that wasn't the way to pray. Well I did go to college and um, I met my husband there and at 24 years old I got married. Nobody could have been more surprised about that than me. Um, When he first asked me to marry him, I just laughed. I mean, I thought that was the most ridiculous thing. (laughs) Up to that point, I was pretty much, you know, in the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle. And I didn't know anyone that was married. None of my friends were married. I'd never been to a wedding. My own wedding was actually the first wedding that I ever went to. And, um, yeah, I guess he must have been pretty persuasive because I did it. And um, it just felt like a a break. It was just a new thing that we were setting off on together and and a, a whole new kind of commitment. So when I met my husband, he had been actually living for several years with the Trappists and living the monastic lifestyle, which fascinated me. He had also been in seminary for a time, studying for the priesthood, He'd even been with the Carthusians briefly, and the Carthusians are the ones that are completely enclosed in their cells, and they just come out to to chant together, and the food is shoved through a little door for them, and once a week they come out and go on a walk together, and that's the only time they talk. So he had tried that. But he had been a convert to Catholicism, and at the point that I met him, he had come out the other end and realized that he could not deal with the Catholic Church as an institution anymore. And I certainly never became a Catholic because of the same reasons, <laughs> but we both loved the ritual of Catholicism, and especially Gregorian chant, which he introduced me to. We used to chant together um on easter we'd we'd chant the the Easter vigil and the midnight mass together rather than going to church um It was like we had the same religion, and it's hard to say what that religion was; it wasn't Catholicism but somehow we just really understood each other. And shortly after I was married, I started uh, graduate school at Princeton. And um, at Princeton, they have this thing called the chapel. And the chapel is uh, actually an enormous uh, faux medieval cathedral. It's huge, beautiful building. And I started singing in the chapel choir there. So, you know... um, sort of, I guess, Episcopalian-style services and uh, the processional every Sunday, wearing the, the robes with the white things over them. You know, I really loved that. And at, at Princeton, besides having a chapel and many other things, they have a lot of money. And um, one of the things that they would do is they would send the choir on a trip every couple of years. So, my second year in choir, it was announced that uh, we would be going on an Asian tour, and we were going to spend six weeks in Asia. And the deal was that if you could get your plane fare together, the college was going to cover everything else. And a lot of that was through their alumni network, and because we were staying with families in the different countries. So, it was three weeks in Japan, a week in Thailand, a week in Hong Kong, some time in Hawaii. But the three weeks in Japan, you know, were quite amazing. It was enough time to sort of get to to know what it felt like to live in Japan, and especially, as I said, because we were staying with families, which I understand is unusual there. But even more uh, remarkable than that was that they arranged various cultural experiences for us, and one of them was that we would visit a, a Zen temple, a famous Zen temple in Kyoto, Yoanji, where there's a famous rock garden. And um, not just visit it, but stay there for three days. And in that temple, they had never let anybody come to train or to stay there that didn't have some kind of Zen background, but somebody from Princeton talked them into this. And so they had these 50 American college kids to send on them. And <laughs> They gave us Zen training. We wore blue robes, Uh, that was their color for lay robes. Uh, They taught us how to sit, they used the stick. We worked, we swept the paths, cleaned the zendos. We learned how to do oryoki meals. Um, It was like a little mini sushin for three days. Slept on futons. I mean, I was so blown away by this whole experience. The sensei was wonderful, he gave us teachings. I mean, I had studied Buddhism a little bit in terms of college coursework, but, you know, as we know, reading about it is not the same as actually doing it. And so it it was a really dramatic experience. Um, One thing I remember is that during a question-and-answer period that we had, there was an altar there that had like a... um, it didn't have a figure on it. It had a rope. I don't know if people have ever seen an altar like that. It was, it was like a rope tied in a certain kind of a knot. Like I remember it as an orange and golden rope. And one of the students asked, asked the sensei, what does that rope symbolize? And he said, nothing. And all the trainees, the, the Japanese trainees, burst out laughing. They thought that was the funniest thing <laughs> that they'd ever heard. And we were going like, what? You know, I didn't get the joke, but I always remembered that. (laughs) I thought of that again when I started on Moo. (laughs) So that was, you know, a a really important experience. It wasn't one that I did anything with um, any more than I signed up for any church or, you know, any any religion that I had been exposed to up to that time. I'd been exposed to a lot of religions, but none of them uh, were mine. And just around that time, I had a, a a good friend. She was actually an old friend from middle school uh, who happened to be living in Princeton during the years that I was there. So we reconnected, and we were spending quite a lot of time together. And during those three or four years of our renewed friendship, she, she was Jewish, but she became um, more and more seriously Jewish as those years went by. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the time, she finally... Uh, converted uh, to a Hasidic sect. She had a Rebbe and um, eventually she had a marriage arranged in that group. And um, I guess to this day, if you call the home, the the, uh, answering machine is still in Yiddish. So she um, just completely turned her life around. And I was watching this happen and was kind of disturbed by it in a lot of ways because a lot of the things that uh, this Rebbe was teaching were completely irrational from my point of view. And um, she was keeping kosher more and more seriously, so eventually when she came to my place, she wouldn't accept anything from me except water, and it had to be in a paper cup. Um, And um, she was spending time trying to convince me that the Jews in general and her Rebbe in particular had a special corner on the truth. And I said to her, you know, I don't, I don't believe that. And she said to me, well, what do you believe? And I said, well, I believe that... Here we go with the cliché. I said, I believe that all religions are like different paths, but they're all leading up the same mountain. And she said to me, well, that might be true, but if you don't get on a path, you're never going to get up the mountain. I was like, oh... <laughs> <laughs> but the way I had been raised and the academic study that I was involved in and all of that really made it difficult for me to value any one path over another. And at the same time my tendency for critical thinking made it hard for me not to see the faults and the flaws in every path. I mean, water in a paper cup, you know? I mean, it was just like but if I wasn't going to work with some of those faults and flaws, you know, I, it, it made me realize, well, how was I going to get up that mountain? So eventually it was a question I was going to have to face, but not yet. This was right around the time that um, my daughter was born and my son was born a couple of years after that. And, um, you know, I can't... Having children and raising children, that's just an irreplaceable experience. but. It was samsara, is what I would like to say about that. Um, It was, you know, finishing my dissertation with babies at home, dealing with kids' daycare, kids' schools, money issues. We could never find a place to live that we could afford. We were moving all the time. We bought a house that we couldn't afford. We were foreclosed on. We were sued twice. I got a job as a professor and then worry about getting tenure and then about getting a book published, about not getting tenure. So there was always something that just had to be done today and always something that had to be dealt with, always some obstacle career-wise or financial, that, you know, the the feeling was if we could just get through that, you know, then we could um, maybe take a breath. And then suddenly it seemed like we did get through that. Um, So now we're at the year 2000, And my children were teenagers now, young teenagers, so anyway, not needing the kind of constant hands-on care that little ones do. And we had finally gotten our financial situation together, so we were able to buy a house. Um, It was a wonderful house. Some of you might remember it, because that was where I was living when I first came to the Zen Center. It's actually the old caretaker's house for the Mount Hope Cemetery. So it's almost in the cemetery, and the view out the window is over the, the graves there. And um, so that was our dream house, you know. <laughs> it was great. It was walking distance to my work. I loved my job. I was doing exactly what I wanted to be doing. And, <clears throat> and we often hear that, <clears throat> that people come to the Dharma because of some loss in their life or some tragedy that sort of brings them up short. But then for some of it it's just for some of us it's it's just the opposite. For me it really was like I had the whole samsaric thing down, you know. I had the right job, the right house, the right family. Everything I'd wanted. <clears throat> so then, you know, why am I still so unhappy? So dissatisfied? How can I be unhappy when I'm so fortunate? there were some little things that came up around that time like I thought if one of us in the family dies I'm not going to have any idea what to do about the funeral that really started haunting me Um, my daughter asked me why doesn't our family have a religion you know other families that you knew had a religion and I didn't really have an answer except that I knew the the flaws and the problems with every religion Um, I was singing in a choir I, I was usually singing in a choir but there was someone in that choir who was a friend trying to convert me to Christianity at that time. And um, at one point, I just said to her, Oh, I'm a Buddhist. And I don't, know, I don't know exactly where that came from, but it did. And the conversation, she just said, Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> so it all sort of came to a head for me in a real night of angst, dark night of the soul. I didn't sleep all night. I just was wrapped in a blanket looking out over the gravestones and just trying to figure it out, you know? Like, what is this all about? What does this life mean? I just didn't know what to do. The Tibetans have what they call the preliminary contemplations or the thoughts that turn the mind to dharma. And those thoughts are the unsatisfactoriness of samsara, the certainty of death, uncertainty of the time of death and the importance of wisely using whatever time we have so I didn't have any of that Dharma vocabulary that night but that's what was going on for me it was like I had discovered those contemplations that are supposed to give energy to your practice so in the morning I said to my husband the most important thing in life is religion and we have to get a religion and it says in the Bible by their fruit, by their fruits ye shall know them And the only people I see putting out good fruits in this country are the Quakers and the Buddhists, so we have to choose one of those. (laughs) And if you don't really want to go with either of those, I'll consider the Episcopalians. (laughs) (laughs) But he wasn't really interested in any organized religion yet, so it was left to my daughter and me. She had gotten more and more interested in Buddhism, and... um, wanted to find a Buddhist youth group to join. And um, when I called the Zen Center, lo and behold, they were just starting one. So I was finally ready to get on the path. And for me, at least, it was... I was an example of what they say. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. I knew that I was looking for a religion and a community... um, But I didn't know I was looking for a teacher. I mean, I don't know that I'd ever really heard of of that or knew anything about it, but... When I arrived here, um, my teacher, who was not a teacher at that time, Amala Roshi, was leading the youth group that we had come for, and shortly after that time, Boden Roshi went on sabbatical for a year, and so she was leading the Zen center. And let's see. I've been talking for a long time already. So that's the coming. <laughs> um, and let me see if I can find a, a few minutes to say something about the the staying. Um, mostly it was just really, really hard. Uh, I, I made a a really strong connection with the Roshi right away, uh, but two years after I got here, She and her husband went back to New Zealand. I had already told her that I wanted to ordain as a priest. It wasn't until 20 years later that I actually did ordain as a priest. So It wasn't until 10 years later that I was in a position to be able to leave my job and ordain as a novice priest. But um, after three years of training as a novice, I just felt so overwhelmed by, by obstacles. Uh, there were logistic ob- obstacles. My family was in in um, this country. We actually were just moving to, to Massachusetts at that time. Um, the center that I was trying to train at and the teacher I was trying to train with was 9,000 miles away from my family. Um, there just didn't seem to be any solution to that. And and there were just spiritual obstacles, too. I just felt so discouraged about my practice. and. So, I told my teacher that I couldn't ordain after all, and I stepped down from that. <coughs> How can I sum this up in a couple minutes here? The The, the point I'm trying to make is that I, I reached that point, but at the same time that I reached that point, something else was going on, which was that both my teacher and I were realizing that I needed to find some different ways to practice than what I was doing. and. Um, I had already, at that point, been starting to get involved with uh, Alan Wallace, who's a Vajrayana teacher and, and uh, teaches shamatha, calm-abiding meditation. And I was doing that, and I was doing a uh, solo retreat. And um, then later, later on, I discovered centering prayer, which is a Christian form of meditation with strong influences from Zen. And so... Just to to read what I wrote here, um, each of these paths gave me something that I needed. Shamatha, an emphasis on calming rather than striving or questioning. Centering prayer, an emphasis on surrender over control and intention over attention. Of course, calming, surrender, and intention are all vitally important parts of the Zen path as well. But these supplemental paths, I'd call them supplemental paths, not alternate paths necessarily, have really enabled me to bring those aspects front and center, to get them in my body, as we say in Zen. So, um, yeah, I still believe with my whole heart that all paths are going up the same mountain. And um, at the same time, we have to find the right paths We have to be willing to wander onto another path at times, if that's what we need. Um, And we start to realize that there really isn't a path because we're already there. So I was going to end with a verse from Dogen, which I guess we barely have time for. Um, So, treading along in this dreamlike, illusory realm, without looking for the traces I may have left. A cuckoo song beckons me to return home. Hearing this, I tilt my head to see who has told me to turn back. But do not ask me where I'm going as I travel in this limitless world where every step I take is my home. So... I think we have time for questions we a little bit. We do have time, so Joe's going to do a little bit of tech setup and we're going to try something different today too.
1: Um, so if we just be paying, Joe will be setting this up. Uh, for people asking
0: questions in the Zendo, we want
1: to make a comment, especially for people who are going to uh, make some comments or, or not suggesting, but just talk a little bit, uh, just for the sake of people on Zoom. I'm actually going to move around with a microphone like they do on some daytime television. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: Jerry Springer without the chaos and violence and stuff in that show. But you can only imagine. You hope. This cushion is kind of slippery. Kanji, um, while on the trial, you can ask her a question. Just speak up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kanji, your uh, yeah. your recounting of uh, the movie you saw of uh, when your mother brought you to uh, yeah, the Vietnam yeah. War that really struck me because I have vivid memories of. In eighth grade, our history teacher showing us mm. graphic images of the Holocaust and, and oh, yeah. concentration camps, and in, in you know, in one sense, you know, it was it was I'm not going to say traumatizing. It was it was, yeah, intense. It, was, it, was yeah. it was intense. But at the same time, it, it very much informed me, informed my education, I think, and and the way I saw the world. And I, I realize that you're in a, in a unique position that you can have the perspective as uh, a mother, grandmother, former college professor, and someone who had that experience. And I'm wondering what your, what your thoughts are as far as, you know, nowadays every class or something needs to have a, a trigger warning or something that, huh. to protect... So-called, you know, or or seemingly protect somebody from, uh, um, uh, you know, these types of what could be difficult emotions, and I'm wondering, you know, what is the, you know, see what I'm getting at as far as what what are the pros and cons, and how what are we protecting people from, or what is lost from from that from them um, uh, experiencing those types of uh, emotions early on. I think. Well, I'm not going to say my perspective, but I just wanted to throw that out there and see if you had any.
0: Well, thoughts I mean, on that. I, I don't want to get um, political, but I think the the trigger warnings and the stuff that's out there are used for it's it's a political ploy. You know, it's used it's mm-hmm. being used in in a political way. And I think actually nowadays kids see much more violence, much earlier, uh, much more regularly. Than we certainly did. So I think what they're, what what you're talking about, what they're putting a limitation on, is certain political points of view, more than seeing things that are violent or actually traumatizing. Um, so yeah, I think that it's all. You know, of course, I yeah, I've raised kids. I I have a granddaughter right now who's at a Jewish school. <sighs> <laughs> Which is an absolutely wonderful school and and my my daughter and her family's conversion to Judaism has been just a wonderful blessing and a great thing for them, but to see the stuff that her school is putting out at this moment, you know it's not yeah so so I think that um things have to be age appropriate as much as you can, and then at some point, yeah, we all have to find out. Some of what actually is go- has gone on, and is going on. Just raise your hand if you
1: have something to say. So, when were you able to now make that uh, make that commitment to uh, being a priest? <laughs> Last year. <laughs> Last year was it a kind of freedom thing that?
0: Or? Um, well, I had stepped down from my novice period, as I said. Mm-hmm. And then um, gradually, I kind of changed my mind, oh, okay. and and thought, well, I really made a mistake there. I really blew it, mm-hmm. and um, so I started trying to get back on the path, but I mean, on the priesthood path. But um, then it was my teacher who wasn't so convinced by that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so then I decided to that that's okay. I'm going to do the lay ordination. So I did the lay. The lay investiture in 2018. That part I was reading from at the end was actually something I wrote for that mm-hmm. occasion. And um, Chisa and I uh, both did the lay ordination, mm-hmm. and um, you know she was there at mine, and we supported each other. And um, yeah, so then you could have knocked me over with a feather when. You know, I always kept doing doksan with Malaroshi Mm -hmm. all these years. and never stopped. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So either I I would be in New Zealand or we'd do it long distance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one day she just said, well, I'd like to ordain you. And I was just completely flabbergasted because I thought I had given all that up, you know. (laughs) So that's how that happened. Yeah. I just want to see, uh, before uh, Luca asks their question, I just want to check in with Zoom, see if anyone has any questions or comments. Okay, Truman, it looks like it's back to the Zendo. All right, Luca. Thanks. Um, Panji, thank you so much for your beautiful talk. Oh, thank you. Um, I really appreciated how you discussed just the the
1: messiness and complexity of spiritual life and practice Mm -hmm. because I
0: I think the prevailing cultural narrative is that it's very cut and dry it's very uncomplicated it's kind of all or nothing and in my own like tiny spiritual journey I've been greatly helped by the so-called supplemental Mm -hmm. practices and paths and things and that's actually enabled me to keep going Right. And so hearing, you know, your long experience with that complexity, like embracing that complexity and it taking what helps you from different sources is really inspiring. So thank you for articulating it so beautifully. Oh, I think you articulated it better than I managed to cuz I was running <laughs> out of time. <laughs> but no, that's really exactly what I was was trying to say and and also just gratitude for to my teacher for um for understanding that, and for actually encouraging me on some of those paths, and even exploring with me sometimes, you know, and I think there's there's a lot of people here at the center who have something else, you know, 12 steps or uh, you know, a synagogue or, or whatever, something else that gives them, you know, a kind of heart community that that um, that they need, yeah, in order to keep going. <laughs> Maybe one more question. Um, Could you say something about uh, how things are in New Zealand, the the, the Sangha there? Um, Things are much as they have been. Amala Roshi is on a three month sabbatical right now, so she's in retreat. Hanya, who's a priest there, has been able to, you know, manage the center in her absence. And um, things during the pandemic were tricky. Um, lost long-term trustee and member because he was an anti-vaxxer, and quite a few people left because the center was requiring that, and then some people left because they didn't think that the center's guidelines were strict enough. So, yeah, caught in the middle of that. Um, Anything specifically that you're wondering about? (laughs) No, that's
1: just a general concern about how their welfare...
0: uh, Yeah, you know, they're plugging along, and... um, yeah, I mean, I guess everybody knows that um, Amala Roshi has been diagnosed with Parkinson's, and so it's really a challenge, but I, th- I think ever since I've known her, she's had one physical challenge or another, and mm-hmm. she just <laughs> <laughs> yeah doesn't stop her. Oh, hold on,
1: James. got them over. Um, what do things like uh, anti-racism? What does anti-racism? How, what is that? How does that make you feel? As far as uh, as far as opening up, opening up into this, uh, this world of truth, uh, and, and, and especially at what the Zen Center is doing, since we're exploring that uh, in, in current times and trying to make some connection with the
0: community well thank you you know for doing it um in this iteration of my stay at the zen center i haven't been involved so you know mm-hmm. i'm I'm as guilty as anyone while at the same time realizing that it's not something we can avoid you know and mm-hmm. and we have to do the work mm-hmm. so yeah I just have to keep trying i don't know what else to say <laughs>
1: yeah one of many things to pass gates. You talked about gates and things, uh, obstruction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, It's good to climb over the earth.
0: Yeah, and, and one of the things that, that did, you know, bring me to the center into to my teacher at the beginning was that they, as well as a youth group, they had just regenerated the Buddhist Peace Fellowship at that time. And so there was a fair amount of political... Activity and social activity and um, mm-hmm. yeah, and then, in other times of my life it 's just been I just want to do my practice, you know I don't mm-hmm. white privilege <laughs> take advantage <laughs> it 's terrible, we'll practice but always yeah yeah, yeah. well you 're right you 're right, yeah, it is practice. Mm-hmm. Do we have time for Jonathan? Oh, did someone else? I had your name, but it's okay. All right, we can have it after, after uh, during brunch. <clears throat>